0: Dublab.
1: Welcome to the Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis LA and Dublap. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello. Hello. Can I please speak with Alex Vitale? Speaking. Hello, Alex. It's Paul. Paul Holdengraber calling you from the quarantine tapes. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. I'm really delighted to have you on the phone. Tell me, where where do I find you? And perhaps you can tell me very briefly what you've been up to in these last six months of the quarantine.
0: Six months. Well, I'm I'm here, I'm here in Brooklyn uh, after having spent uh, six months in rural Massachusetts with my family. But we've come back to Brooklyn in hopes that our children can get some in-person uh, schooling. And uh, while, you know, during the six months, you know, in between teaching, I spent the summer really responding to the, the protests that have been happening uh, on the streets. And kind of a, a whirlwind of, of press interest and, and working with organizations and elected officials to try to figure out what this defund the police thing is.
1: And, and if, if you could give me perhaps in those six months since you've been so busy responding, what are some of the m- more interesting moments or ones you might find productive which may actually lead to an outcome one could hope for?
0: Well, I think one of the really important challenges is that, you know, no one was really using this expression, defund the police, before this summer. I think it was something that could kind of fit on a protest sign or or a hashtag, but didn't really capture exactly what this movement was about. So I feel like mostly I spend several hours a day uh, doing whatever I can to try to explain what this really means to people. Uh, and this means, you know, agreeing to endless media uh, events, uh, public presentations, uh, talking one-on-one with elected officials, etc. And so I feel like I've been really uh, a message communicator over the last several months.
1: Forgive me for asking you yet again, that only adds another five minutes to your, your daily chore What does it in fact mean? (laughs) What does in fact defund the police mean? Because I know it's a cry. I know it's a slogan. I know it's powerful, the way abolish the police is as well. But what does it mean? What does it mean since you know probably from your investigations in a historical context, what that term means and the sedimentation that goes with it.
0: Defund the police is kind of an immediate demand to get us to try to rethink our, you know, just dramatic over-reliance on policing as the solution to every conceivable social problem. And it's really about trying to demand that local governments redirect spending away from policing and towards community-identified interventions that these communities think will actually make them safer than just relying on police.
1: You've spoken about reducing the burden of policing in America today, which leads one naturally to ask which jobs shouldn't the police be doing that they are currently doing?
0: Well, a lot. (laughs) You know, it includes everything from, from traffic enforcement to narcotics enforcement, sex work, uh, dealing with folks who are having a mental health crisis, folks who are homeless, uh, getting police out of the schools. And it can also include rethinking how we use them to address domestic violence, youth violence, gangs. It's really a huge gamut of things where we have some pretty concrete alternatives available to us.
1: Well, I, I, we will get to those alternatives because I think you have some interesting, if not solutions, at least proposals to make. I want to start really our conversation, not that we haven't started yet, but by quoting to you a line that I think you like because you quoted it yourself, and I'd love you to unpack it for me and for the listeners. Anatole France said, The law in its majesty forbids both the rich and the poor from sleeping under bridges, stealing bread, and begging in the streets. What does that mean for you?
0: Well, I think part of the problem with the conversation about how to fix the problems with policing is that most of the proposals for police reform rest on this kind of idealized notion. That the law, when properly enforced, automatically benefits everyone equally, that it creates this kind of neutral, beneficial playing, you know, rules for a playing field that we all benefit from. But in fact, that the law has always served to benefit some over others and it tends to reproduce existing inequality. And so the Anatoly France example, uh, quote tell, you know, reminds us that certain laws really only apply to those at the losing end of those arrangements, while those on the winning end are free to do as they choose often. And we're, we're seeing this with the current way that you know Donald Trump, for instance, has avoided paying taxes in a way that's probably mostly quite legal. And the people who destroyed the economy in 2008 have suffered no legal consequences. Most of the people involved in the Enron scandal suffered no legal consequences. So we shouldn't just take the law at face value.
1: This is a good occasion having you on the line to, to ask you a little bit about the origins of policing. How did policing as we know it come about you described so interestingly the origins of the london metropolitan police
0: right so uh, part of this again this kind of liberal misconception about policing is that they were created to be this neutral force to to uh make sure that laws were followed in a way that benefited everyone with greater legitimacy etc My argument is that policing is created to manage the consequences of regimes of exploitation. Mm. And in the 19th century, when police forces are created for the most part, this mostly revolves around things like colonialism, slavery, and the manufacturing of an industrial working class. So the London Metropolitan Police are created in 1829, supposedly as the first you know, professional, civilian, law enforcement, police force, uh, to manage this huge influx of rural workers who've been displaced from agriculture and to sort of micromanage their behavior to shape them into a stable workforce. And what, what the liberal scholars never talk about is where did this idea come from? The police, the London Metropolitan Police, are created by Sir Robert Peel,
1: Robert, Bob, the Bobbies. I loved that. I loved loved reading that. That was fantastic.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, he got the idea when he was in charge of the English colonial occupation of Ireland. And he's having to manage so-called agricultural outrages in the Irish countryside against English landowners. And at this time, the English army is tied up on the continent with Napoleon. And the treasury has run dry, and he has to come up with a cheaper, more efficient strategy. And he develops the Irish Peace Preservation Force, which eventually becomes the Royal Irish Constabulary of today, that's embedded in communities and can act more preemptively to shut down these so-called agricultural outrages. He then takes that idea to London and applies it to the urban working class there. And then that idea is exported to the U.S. and other places where there's a constant interchange of colonial practices, the management of slaves, and the management of working class movements
1: you know reading that story it it, it reminded me of a, a, another french scholar louis chevalier who wrote a book called laboring classes and dangerous classes it's it's really very interesting to 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 read about the origins of of policing in in in, in great britain and another story you tell which is so fascinating is a story about the philippines What was the influence of American imperialism in the Philippines on early American policing?
0: So the Philippines becomes an American territory about 125 years ago in the wake of the Spanish-American War. It had been a Spanish territory, and we take it over. And we faced, the U.S. faced a tremendous anti-colonial movement in the Philippines and we responded with a whole set of counterinsurgency technologies and techniques. Uh, and those technologies and techniques and personnel are then imported into the United States to create police forces to try to control what are emerging industrial actions, strikes, and, and other kinds of labor practices that are kind of tearing apart uh, a lot of America at the beginning, the you know, the early years of the 1900s. And so the first police, state police force in the United States was the Pennsylvania State Police created in 1905. And they literally bring individual technologies and techniques from the Philippines to use against striking workers in the coal and iron fields of Pennsylvania causing the workers there to label those new state police uh, officers the Pennsylvania Cossacks. And they played no role in crime control. They were just there to suppress the emerging union movement.
1: Alex Vitale, one thing I'd like to discuss with you is your own lineage How did you get interested in this subject so deeply? Reading about uh, your academic trajectory, I I imagined you having conversations with Marshall Berman and perhaps other scholars I don't know. I'd I'd love you to to give briefly what, what brought you to be interested in this.
0: Well, my interest really didn't come initially from academic study. It came from doing policy work. So before getting my doctorate, I worked at the San Francisco Coalition on Homelessness in the early 90s during a period of intense criminalization of homelessness. And while I was there initially to work on housing policy and economic development uh, issues, I got pulled into this. Uh, defending homeless people from police attacks, Mm. and this forced me to do some rethinking about the relationship between the criminal justice system and urban problems of of homelessness and disinvestment. I then go to the CUNY Graduate Center, where I was friendly with Marshall Berman. I was also very interested in the work of David Harvey. Yes, public uh, public
1: spaces.
0: Yes, and and a radical geography of space. As well as criminal, critical criminologists like Jock Young, David Garland, as well as you know Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and eventually people like Michelle Alexander all influenced my thinking in how to integrate these ideas about mass criminalization and mass incarceration into our understanding of the geography of the city
1: no I I, I truly as I said I truly uh, reading about you and reading your work I just imagined. Uh, you and Marshall Berman having conversations, a book of his that always mattered to me so much was a book called All That Solid Melts Into Air, and I, I, I felt that there was a kinship there and I'm I'm happy to, to hear that in fact you you did know him. Now you spent time shadowing police officers as I understand it. What what did you learn from that experience?
0: that policing is 99% boredom and 1% sheer terror. This was how it was often described to me by officers, but mostly I only saw the 99% part, that that most police work is quite banal, has little to do with enforcing the law, Mm. and is often quite frustrating to the officers involved because they generally lack the tools to address the problems that they've been called upon to address. Uh, They frequently have to go time and time again to the same locations to deal with the same problems because the tools available to them, threat, arrest, coercion, aren't capable of solving whatever's driving that problematic or harmful behavior.
1: So directly, I mean, uh, my my next question directly uh, addresses how one might redress uh, the the police. You talk about, and I find this fascinating, justice reinvestment. Can you describe that model and how it might or could or would work?
0: So justice free investment was the concept that the criminal legal system is you know, inherently problematic, that policing, prisons, even parole and probation are not the best way to handle our social problems, and that we should try to identify concrete, specific ways of addressing local problems in ways that don't involve the criminal legal system and trying to create savings in that system by diverting people or problems into these alternative strategies and then taking that savings and further investing it into community needs. And so this this was a really interesting idea. Unfortunately, it got kind of hijacked and became really about just moving money around within the criminal legal system And defund the police is really an attempt to recapture this idea and make sure that the money that's taken out of the criminal justice system really goes into community-identified programs.
1: Such as what programs? I mean, what programs... I imagine there'll be incredible resistance if this ever really comes to pass in a strong, bold way. The police will probably resist and their unions will resist uh, this defunding process. But let's assume for a moment that a certain form of enlightenment might happen. What are the programs that uh, would really benefit and could benefit and perhaps might make policing less 99% boredom and maybe only make it 50%. <laughs> well, so <laughs> that was a good laugh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what we need to do is we
0: need to talk to communities about what the specific public safety challenges are that they face. Is it youth violence? Is it domestic violence? Is it overdoses? Is it car break-ins? And then we need to look at whether or not we can come up with credible non-police strategies to address those very specific concerns. And it turns out for a huge amount of what police do, we have those alternatives in mind. You know, here in New York City, we have over 5,000 NYPD personnel attached to New York City schools, more than all counselors of all varieties combined. And the research shows they're not effective. They criminalize students, especially non-white and disabled students, and that creating real mental health services, real counseling, real supports for students would actually make the schools safer and create a better learning environment. We need to get police out of the mental health business. Between a quarter and a half of all people killed by police in the United States are having a mental health crisis, and police just are the wrong tool for that problem. So we need to create community-based mental health services, crisis response teams that can actually be staffed by clinicians, not people with guns. I think we need to get them out of the drug business and out of the sex work business we need to look at legalization schemes, harm reduction strategies. So uh, we need to get them out of traffic enforcement. They, they, their enforcement activities are mostly driven by fishing expeditions for drugs, and they have very little positive impact on driver safety.
1: You're mentioning New York. You, you lived in the Rudy Giuliani, New York of the 1990s. How would you say, Alex, The city changed under that administration, and perhaps you could say something about the present administration, if you so care.
0: So my previous book, City of Disorder, deals Uh, with this question about the rise of Giuliani and, and how the city responded to that. You know, both political parties have become invested, committed to a kind of neoliberal austerity politics. In which they cut services, cut the social safety net, and then push wealth up the economic ladder to subsidize those who are already successful in hopes that some of their success will kind of trickle down to the rest of us. But that approach has created mass homelessness, Mm. mass untreated mental health and substance abuse problems, mass participation in black markets, failed schools, and all the rest. And then policing has been used to put a lid on that. So what Giuliani did was that he said the previous mayor, David Dinkins, is not putting a lid on those social problems. I will use the police to put a lid on those social problems. And since they both basically had the same economic development and taxation policies, but Giuliani had a plan for managing the disorderly consequences of it, people voted for Giuliani. And so he set about the mass criminalization of homeless people, of youth, of of graffiti writers, you know, sex workers and all the rest. Did that put a damper on the disorder in the city? Yes, it did. But it came at the expense of mass incarceration and mass criminalization that did little to improve the lives of those who were targeted.
1: So to, to what extent do you see a connection between the war on drugs and the war on terror?
0: Well, I think in both cases, we need to ask ourselves, what is the value of turning a very real problem over to the police assault mm. or the military assault? Because we should understand that the use of those forces invariably comes with a huge amount of negative collateral consequences and that it should always be the tool of absolute last resort. And what they share in this case is a kind of neoconservative ideology that says actually the use of force should be the tool of first resort. They're, they're committed to this notion of human behavior as reduced to a simple idea about deterrence. That if we just threaten people and punish people enough, then they will do what they're told. Whether it's Saddam Hussein in Iraq or a homeless person living in Central Park. And what I'm trying to argue for is we need a completely different theory about human nature that doesn't just rely on negative sanctions, as well as a new notion of justice that doesn't equate justice with punishment and accountability with mass incarceration.
1: What, what is abolition in the context of policing and prisons? How would you actually define it?
0: So I think about abolition in three ways. Okay. First, it's an, first, it's an analysis. It says that policing and prisons are tools of violence that have always been used to reproduce profound inequalities of race, class, gender, and sexuality in American society and immigration status. And that by having that analysis, it prevents us from making the mistake of thinking that we can fix the problems of policing and prisons by making them nicer, friendlier, more professional, et cetera. Second, abolition for me is about a process. There's no magic switch where tomorrow we can just get rid of all police, close all prisons. These institutions exist and it's going to take a tremendous amount of political effort. To diminish them. And so we start by developing as many concrete interventions as we can to dial them back, pursuing a logic of diminishing them, not trying to fix them. Mm -hmm. And third, abolition is about a vision of possibility, about a desire to live in a world in which public safety isn't produced by people with guns or by putting human beings into cages. And, you know, none of us knows exactly what that world would look like or exactly how to get there, but that vision helps guide the work that we're engaged in.
1: Well, none of us do know, but you are teaching, as I understand at the moment, and I imagine vision and envisioning a different kind of future is part of what you try to impart on your students. So give me a sense of of how you go about expanding those young minds to think differently, and maybe to think differently at this moment, Alex, where you know Arundhati Roy has spoken of the pandemic as a portal. And is it a portal? Is it possible that in these six months so many things have happened that perhaps we might think that things should happen differently once it's over?
0: Yeah, well, it's such a challenging time for students who, who especially uh, my students who are lower income and, and had jobs in service industries that, that, that many of them have lost those jobs. And so uh, there's a lot of work to be done to just keep them on track. Right. But I think also the crisis is creating an opening uh, for reimagining That's as you mentioned, the, the normal rules no longer apply. And so now is the time to do some rethinking. And I try to expose them to historical analysis and cross-cultural analysis so that they can see that the status quo that we're in now is not the only possible way of being. I mean, for instance, police and prisons have only existed for about 200 years. This is not the only possible way of organizing society. And so we need to explore what those alternatives might look like.
1: In closing, Alex, um, I've heard that your your book, The End of Policing, is quite popular among police in the UK. Why do you think that is? What are they getting from you that they need that might, well, I want to say more.
0: Yeah, I think it's a kind of cautionary tale for them. I think they, they see from a distance that American policing is broken, and they like to think that they do things very differently. And my book kind of lays out this massive expansion in the scope and intensity of American policing that hasn't really hit in the UK, and, but there is pressure in the UK to move in this direction. So many police in the UK don't want to fill the school, don't want to be in charge of mental health services, don't want to really have a ramped up war on drugs. And so my book is appealing to them, I think, as as a a, a kind of
1: evidence about why they shouldn't go down that road. They don't want 99% of boredom.
0: Well, they don't want to really wage a war on the poor in the way we do in the United States.
1: Alex Vitale, it's been important and very good to talk to you. And I hope uh, that someday we actually meet in person. But for now, I really thank you very, very much for taking the time to speak to us. Thank you so much for calling, Paul. All the best to you. Bye-bye. And you. To support this show and DubLab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com support.